0: good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you here today. And as Pastor Eric did share, I'm very intense. My wife tells me all the time to tone it down a little bit. So I'll try my best, but I can't help it when, you know, I mean, it's just so good in here. Um, well, it's a privilege to be here at this retreat. I feel like every time I come to Pillar Baptist Church, the church is growing, and you can see the growth in Christ and the love for one another. And what a good theme that we have together as a uh, we meet together as one body. So if you have God's word with you, uh, please turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And This is a reading of God's holy and living word. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we're here together as one body to worship the one God of heaven and earth, we thank you that in this, con- in this retreat we have together, we have your word and your spirit who works inside of us and who is living in us. And we pray that your spirit would do its best work now in enlightening our hearts and convicting us of sin, helping us to understand the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel... Jesus gives the most extensive prayer that is recorded for us in the New Testament. That prayer is called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Just before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus prayed for his disciples and for all who would know him. It was a prayer for Christian unity for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven to his Father, and he said, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, and the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity." Yet here we are in the 21st century, and the church is probably more divided than any time in church history. Just what did Jesus mean in his prayer for us to be one? Well, throughout church history, there have been many different approaches for this goal of unity in the church. In the 20th century, there has been what has been labeled the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical means essentially universal an age where the church seeks to be the universal church. This was an attempt to promote unity through the World Council of Churches and different denominations into one centralized body. And the whole goal of the ecumenical movement was to restore unity to the visible church. The problem with this method was that the more different denominations and more churches merged together, the more there were people that didn't agree with this merger. And those that didn't agree with this merger left to form new organizations and align uh, with their values. And so, in all their efforts to unify as one body, these movements actually created more churches. Another problem that arose out of this movement was that, in order to achieve this one centralized body with so many different denominations and different viewpoints that can easily cause division and fragments in the church body, they have accommodated different views of the church at the expense of the central tenets of the Christian faith. As R.C. Sproul said it, as a church becomes more pluralistic, the number of contradictory viewpoints that are tolerated increases. People strive to keep unity, church visibly, united at all cost. However, he warned, there is always a price tag for this. And historically, the price tag has been, the confessional purity of the churches. What we now have today is the emerging church movement strongly influenced by the uh, postmodern philosophy, which says that there is no absolute truth. And if there is any absolute truth, we cannot know it with any certainty. And so today we are being pressured in our churches to be tolerant of all that claim to be Christian and even non-Christian religions. They claim that doctrine is divisive, and those who claim to know the truth are arrogant. And so for the sake of love and unity, we should just set aside our doctrinal convictions and accept one another without criticizing doctrinal beliefs. But what we must remember here today is that when the church was called to unity in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul spoke of unity in these terms, one Lord. One faith, one baptism. Paul's concern is not for some organizational unity. Rather, his concern is for unity in Christ, a united confession of his person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians do not need to agree on everything to have unity, but they must have unity in Christ if it is to resemble anything of the unity that Jesus prayed for. The formula popularized by the Puritan Richard Baxter is still very good guidance for us today. Unity in essentials, liberty in incidentals, and in all things, charity. All things charity. That just about sums up the heart of Paul's exhortation in the turn of the fourth chapter as he begins with this mighty plea in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, in the context of what we're looking at in Ephesians, you would note that Ephesians neatly divides into two sections. The first section of chapters 1 to 3 tells us of what God has done for us. Chapters 4 to 6 tell us what we must do for God. It's what we call moving from the indicatives of the gospel to the moral imperatives of the gospel. To be more specific, chapters 1 to 3 deals with our riches in Christ, while chapters 4 to 6 deals with our duty for Christ. Now, Paul devotes the first three chapters in speaking of every spiritual blessing we have in Christ in the heavenly places. Now, if we just go back to chapters one to three, we can just catch a glimpse of the riches we have in Christ. Go to chapter one, verse four, tells us that God the Father chose us in him, that is in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Go to verse seven of chapter one, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In verse 13 of chapter 1, the moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is true of all Christians, you were sealed in him. That is in Christ Jesus with the Holy Spirit of promise. In chapters 2, 1 to 10, Paul goes on to share just how intimately intertwined our lives are with Jesus Christ and how rich we are. He tells us that God being so rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That means that his death and resurrection becomes our death and resurrection. And then in chapters 2, 11 to 22, tells us that God didn't have only specific individuals in mind When Jesus died on the cross, but more so, he had a people in mind. One body, where we are not only united with the head, but intimately united with one another as his body. And then, chapter 3, Paul goes on to reiterate that we've been given the unfathomable riches of Christ. Chapter 4, then, marked by this very important word, therefore, Along with those words, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, he means be who you are. Be who you already are in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that God has called us because we are worthy. But in response to that unspeakable gift and the riches we have in Christ, we should do everything in our power to be worthy of that calling. You see, the focus is not on our worth, but the worth of our calling. Our high calling demands a high responsibility. You have been given everything in Christ. He's saying, now live up to your calling. But what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? If you notice in verse 3 of chapter 4, the first thing that he defines in how we are to walk this way is to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He emphasizes unity first. I mean, you would think that after describing all of the riches that we have in Jesus Christ, you might have expected Paul to emphasize to grow in our personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. Yet the very first thing that Paul emphasizes in our worthy walk is our need for unity in our life together as his body. You know, most of our problems in life mainly come from the fact that we persistently start with ourselves. This is one of the main results of sin. Sin puts man himself in the center. Sin tells us that I alone am important and that what I feel and what is happening to me is what really matters. I mean, just Think of some of the most common complaints that you hear in the church today. No one pays attention to me. Or oh, even the pastors, they don't have time for me. You know, people are so cliquish here. I don't, I don't seem to fit in anywhere in the church. Oh, there are too many young people here. I, I want to find a church that better suits my needs. Or oh, there are too many married couples here. I feel like I'm being left out. Oh, we spend too much time thinking about ourselves and our personal interests. You would know that the New Testament shatters that kind of thinking by giving us a wonderful picture of the church and of ourselves as but members of this great mystical body of Christ. And the moment you start seeing things in that way, you know, we'll be cured of most of our problems and live the kind of life we were meant to live. The call to follow Christ through the gospel is a call to grow in loving relationships with one another. The first and the great commandments are linked. As you read in your devotions today in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so Paul begins with this appeal to walk in a matter worthy of the gospel by emphasizing the relational aspect of the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is the first step in working out the therefore in our riches in Christ to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now we know this issue was so important for the Apostle Paul that he actually continues this theme of unity all the way down to verse 16, which we'll look at in our time at this retreat. But before we consider the particulars in how we are to maintain the unity of the spirit, I want us to consider for a second the nature, the character of this unity. What is this unity? Well first, uh, we already mentioned that this unity is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and we are his body jesus christ would say of his church this is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh second notice that this unity is not something that we create but it's a unity that already exists this is what the phrase unity of the spirit means it means the unity produced by the holy spirit himself we cannot produce this unity because it has its origin in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit created it, he accomplished it. That's why the Apostle Paul never asked us to create this unity, he never tells us to organize this unity. Rather, his concern is to preserve it, to maintain what already exists. The unity already exists, we're called to keep it, to maintain it. And third, since this Holy Spirit is the one who created this unity, this unity is something that is living, something that is spiritual, something vital. It's the Holy Spirit who causes us to regenerate it, to be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us and links us to one another, to the blessed head, to Christ. So it's something that flows from the Holy Spirit where we share a vital union with each other and with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this unity runs far deeper than some mechanical organization of coming together for a certain purpose. It is a unity of spirit that always starts within and that works itself outwardly. Having said all that, when we go back to verse 2, we see how we are to maintain this unity. This appeal to live worthy of the divine calling is now more clearly described as being a life characterized by the virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing word, love. Notice these are relational words. And notice these are the fruits of the Spirit. Paul's first major point is that Christian unity depends on the charity of our character. This is where the Apostle Paul begins. And this is where we must begin. Christian unity doesn't begin with structures and programs to create this. It starts in the attitudes of the heart. Notice that these four characteristics form two natural pairings. The first is humility and gentleness. The second is patience and forbearing love. There are two stages that form a progression, each one building upon the other. Let's look at the first pairing, humility and gentleness. You know, I once heard of a congregation which gave its pastor a medal for humility. And then the pastor put it on, and they took it away from him. Because, you see, humility is one of those things where the moment you realize you have it, it's gone, right? But that doesn't really help us to understand what humility is. Humility means literally lowliness of mind. Uh, it's an attitude that humbly recognizes the worth and the value of other people. This word is found in Philippians 2, 3, where it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but you know that verse, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves." Humility is in contrast with self-seeking and vainglorious boasting. It's the opposite of self-advertisement, self-promotion, self-ambition that is so dominated in our world today. The original word means modesty. It means that there is an utter lack of self-assertiveness. It's the opposite of the worldly spirit that says trust in yourself, believe in yourself. And so we can say this about Christian humility is that it comes from a true knowledge of ourselves. And you know to face oneself is one of the most humiliating things in the whole world. Most of us tend to dr- dramatize ourselves. You know, I heard story of a man who, before he went to sleep, he dreamt of all his waking dreams, and he would see himself as some hero, right, in a thrilling rescue. He would see himself as an equi- uh, eloquent orator who would, who would cast the, the, uh, a spellbound of all the people. He would see himself as the dazzling quarterback, the star quarterback, He would always see himself as the center of the picture. And you know what? Most of us are like that. And I'll tell you guys, most of us, we're we're not like Steph Curry, all right, on the basketball court. But sometimes we think we're like that because we just want to shoot the ball. True humility comes when we have an honest view of our weaknesses, our imperfections, our failures. But true humility also comes when we hold our lives beside the perfect life of Christ. So long as we compare ourselves with second best, we'll always come out with a self-satisfying view of ourselves. True humility refuses to compare ourselves with others, especially those that are lesser than us, but it holds our lives to the true standard of the perfection in Christ. If you compare yourself with your neighbor, right, find some bum who is shorter than you, uglier than you, less talented than you, I mean, you always come out looking pretty good, right? But you compare yourself to Christ, there is no room for pride. How important humility is in keeping the unity of the Spirit. It's pride that lurks behind all divisions of the church, while humility is the secret to unity. This is not difficult to prove in our own experience. The people that we instinctively like, find it easy to get along with, are the people who give us the respect we think we deserve, while the people we instinctively don't like are those that really treat us like dirt, right? So how are we supposed to look out for someone's best interest when they don't do the same to us? How is that even possible? Oh, it's when we go back to the riches we have in Christ when we see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us. Peter puts it in this most striking manner. He says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when Peter used that word, clothe, it means putting on the apron of humility. And when Peter wrote those words, You know, he had in mind in the scene of the 13th chapter of John's gospel in the upper room where the very Son of God, knowing that he had come from God and knowing he would go back to God, took a towel, put on himself an apron, and he stooped down, taking the form of a servant and washed the feet of his disciples, one of which was Judas, who was going to betray him. And he said to them, If I, who am your Lord, And master, do that to you? You must do the same to one another. So friend, would you put on that apron of humility and consider others better than yourselves? Would you put on the towel of humility and stoop down to wash one another's feet? That is your responsibility to one another. That is your high calling. That is a secret to preserve the unity of God the Spirit. Now, next to humility, Paul pairs it with gentleness or meekness in your translations. Now, meekness is one of those words that is often misunderstood by us. We often think of meekness as weakness, right? person who is dominated by everyone. Meekness in the Bible doesn't mean that. It means strength under control. It pictures a person who controls his temper and does not retaliate or revenge. Meekness was used of wild beasts that were tamed and under control. It's the quality of a man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. For example, controlled by the master's will, a well-trained dog is always angry at the master's foes but never angry at the master's friends. And only the person who is controlled by the spirit of God can truly be meek, and gentle, angry at the right time, and never angry at the wrong time. To put it another way, the man and woman who is gentle is one who is angry at the wrongs and the sufferings of others, but is never moved to anger by the wrongs and insults he himself has to bear. Always angry at the right time, never angry at the wrong time. So, Someone offends me, says some unkind thing to me, and I get all worked up. Why? Because I am not meek. Someone attacks my character and misunderstands me, and I'm filled with rage. Why? Because I am not meek. Someone doesn't agree with my uh, opinion at a membership meeting, and I get all frustrated and angry. Why? Because I am not meek or the elders make a decision that is different from what I desired, and I become bitter and resentful at them. Why? Because I am not meek. What does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When the Lord Jesus Christ was being betrayed and crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, his his disciples wanted to take out swords and fight. And he says, don't you know that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me legions of angels? Jesus chooses not to use his strength, but to be betrayed and crucified. From the time when Judas kissed him, to the people mocking at him, to the centurions crucifying him, at any time in that process, Jesus could have stopped them. Could have stopped the situation altogether, but he was meek. And we who are members of his body must also walk, as he walked in meekness. Let's not forget that little word, all, in front of humility and meekness. That word all tells us that we cannot pick and choose when and to whom we show humility and gentleness. It means in every situation, at all times, whoever the person, whatever the wrong they have done, with all humility and gentleness. Paul goes on to give us a second pair of virtues which results from the first. It is called patience. Another word for patience is long-suffering, because it means to suffer long and not give way to passion. This is the spirit of no retaliation. It's defined as the power to take revenge, but it never does does so. And to take a very uh, imperfect analogy, sometimes you'll see a little puppy and a very large dog together. I see this all the time when I visit my sister-in-law's place, Augie is a big, golden retriever. Joey is a small, little Maltese. He actually passed away a couple weeks ago. Rest in peace, Joey, all right? But uh, anyways, when I did see them, Joey, the little dog, would yap at Augie all day, barking him. And Augie would want to try to play him, play with him. And and Joey would also always bite him, you know? And uh, even though Augie, the big dog, could annihilate Joey, and, and with one smash of his giant paws could just destroy him, he bears Joey's sassiness <laughs> and rudeness with a patient spirit. This word patience is the spirit which deals with unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without irritation. I mean, isn't this so practical for us? Isn't this so real in our church? Paul knows what it's like to live with other Christians. When you live in a church body long enough and see each other on a weekly basis, you're bound to come across people that just get under your skin, you know? Or or, uh, as my professor likes to call it, blood-sucking leeches. They just annoy you taking all your time away. There's just certain people that just they might offend you. So friend, do you know much about patience? Do you know much about long-suffering? You say, well, I, I don't mind if what she says about me was true, but when I know it isn't true, I just can't stand it. That's how the flesh talks, the need for long-suffering. Do you know about much about long-suffering at home? You say, you know, there's only certain things I'm willing to deal with my husband, but I have a limit, you know. Once they cross that line, oh, it's on. Oh, friend, do you, don't you know much about long-suffering? Don't you know that God had so much uh, long-suffering upon you? Don't you know that if God were a man, none of us would still be alive because of the sheer irritation done to him? Would he not just wipe us out because of our disobedience if he were not long-suffering? But God showed much patience When wronged by sin. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter 3 to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Because for millennia, God has been putting up with our sinfulness. He waited for the right time. He waited for the right moment to send his son to die for his sins. He's waiting for the right time for Jesus to come back, and the Lord Jesus Christ is patient. He patiently endured, endured the shame and the scorn for the people that hated him. And so it's in Jesus Christ that we have the best definition of patience. And just as Christ showed us patience, we must also do likewise with our brothers and sisters. Now, if we're humble and meek and patient, we'll show tolerance for one another in love. This is the practical expression by what is meant by patience. It means literally to put up with. Uh, I prefer the older NASB translation forbearing. Forbearing means putting up with people's shortcomings, quirks, and differences. You know, we too at times use this expression, right, when we say, you should just put up with his behavior. However, when we say this, we don't always mean what the Apostle Paul meant. We may simply be referring to bearing with another person's behavior without uh, any outward resentment, but we are raging underneath. That is why Paul combines forbearing one another with agape love. Note how Apostle Paul furthers uh, this addition. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love. This refuses the attitude to say, well, I'm married to the guy. I guess I got to put up with his behavior, right? Or I guess I'm supposed to put up with her behavior because after all, she's a member of this church. Agape love denounces such attitude. Agape love is unconquerable benevolence. It's the kind of love that always seeks the highest good of someone no matter their faults. It's a love that even goes out to their enemies and prays for its persecutors. Forbearing love is not concern that you are right and they are wrong. Rather, you'll be concerned with that you are right and they themselves would be right and bring along with them. It's coming down to their level, putting on the apron to get on your knees. It's to be one with him or her. Here, beloved, are the virtues needed from all of us with the aim of preserving the unity of the spirit. Let me just add one more thing. That in every one of these four great virtues, it all depends on the obliteration of self. In order to have humility, we must renounce self-centeredness and self-advertisement. In order to have gentleness, we must do away with pride and anger. In order to have patience, we must renounce our own agendas. In order to have forbearing love, we must let go of our own rights. So long as self is the center of things, this oneness can never fully exist. But when your self dies, Christ springs to life within us. And then comes the peace, the unity of the spirit. Friends, let me ask you, how do you measure up to these Christian virtues? I, I must admit, as I was preparing this sermon, I was shameful, rebuked, that I was going to speak about this to you and not even live it on myself. But these are this, the high calling demanded from us, and that's what we're aiming at. Christian unity depends on the charity of our character Then Paul goes on to tell us that Christian unity has its ultimate basis in the unity of our God. I think what Paul is doing here is that after giving his exhortation to preserve the unity of the Spirit, he gives us a picture of what it looks like. And not only what it looks like, but where our unity is ultimately based on. He wanted us to see the objective grounds of where this unity is based on, so that it will serve as a strong motivation for us to preserve the unity of the Spirit. He presents a series of seven statements. Even the casual reader, when you glance down to verses 1 to 6, you're struck by Paul's repetition of the word one. He does this to emphasize the unity in the Godhead. A more careful reading of this shows that each of these three groups is arranged around one person of the blessed trinity the important thing to see here is that it teaches us that our unity is rooted in and has its ultimate basis in the holy trinity we should see ourselves as a church as a reflection of the oneness and the triune god first we see the person of the holy spirit and his work in bringing unity tells us there is one body and one spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates the body of Christ, and there is one spirit who links us to Christ and dwells within us so that we are joined together as one body. As Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, for we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. You were all given the Holy Spirit so that with every other Christian you might share in the one common principle of life. And it is this common possession of the Holy Spirit that brings us together as one body. And when Paul says that there is only one body, he's speaking of the totality of all believers in Christ from the time of his first coming until he comes again. There is only one body. You know, I was studying at Panera the other day. I had uh, all my commentaries out, my Bible out. I was preparing for this retreat and a sermon. And some guy came, sat down with me and asked if I were a Christian. And this guy was as different as I was. He was a uh, young, white, Caucasian male, uh, the hipster kind of type, you know, tatted up everywhere, had those skinny jeans and everything. And this was just different. He said he was part of the charismatic movement and all of that. But he found out that I was preparing for a sermon on Christian unity, and he wanted to pray for me. And so you could tell a lot about the content of a man's prayer, by what he prays, and so he started to pray. And as he prays, he was sharing, oh, thank you, Lord, for the common bond we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I was like, amen. This was legit, right? And then he starts going on talking about Christian unity and lays out the content and my outline, really, of the sermon I was preparing. It was a wonderful experience a mutual delight in someone that was so different from me. Yet, you know, the Spirit was present. And it was in our genuine encouragement for one another because where the Spirit reigns, there is unity. There is the body of Christ. And this one body produced by the one Spirit gives us the one hope of our calling and this one hope looks to the future, to re- the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we might defer here in, times, in as to terms of the timeline of how it all works out in the future, but we would all agree of the one hope that when Christ returns, we shall see him and be like him as he is. It's the Holy Spirit that assures us of this great promise. Second, there is the person of Christ and his work in ministering unity. Tells us in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The unities of verse 4 cluster around the person of Jesus Christ. There is only one Lord. And when we talk about Jesus as Lord, we're talking about him as the ultimate authority. He is the one Lord of the church. That's why there there are not many lords. There are not many lords. There is only one Lord lord only jesus is lord and if there is only one lord and we are all following him and open to what he's doing in our lives that is a powerful force that draws us together and that cuts through all differences and race and culture and opinions that's why friends it's very difficult to believe that two believers who claim to believe and obey the same lord and not be able to walk together in unity. Whenever believers are not walking in unity, it means that you are out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. Submitting ourselves to the one true Lord is a giant step towards maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And because there is only one Lord, there is only one faith for the Lord Jesus Christ is the object of our focus of our faith. Jude calls it the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Peter puts it bluntly in Acts 4 where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is by no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So as far as the gospel is concerned, there is only one faith, only one body of truth. There's not all these different ways to get get to heaven. There's only one way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And to depart from this one faith is to bring this unity in the church. And because of this one faith, we have all participated in one baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the agent of baptism, while Jesus Christ is the baptizer. At Jesus' own baptism, John the Baptist says, you know, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. One baptism refers to the one shared baptism we share at the moment of our conversion when we are placed into the body of Christ. And so the one baptism speaks of the inward reality of having been baptized into one Lord by means of one faith. And then we come to the person of the Father in whom our unity all flows from. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Of all means he is the Father of all true Christians. He is over all as our sovereign God. He lives through all Christians and manifests himself in all Christians. We are children in the same family, loving and serving the same Father. That's why the Lord's Prayer opens with our Father, not my Father. We are now in a position to repeat the three persons of the Godhead in their work of unity. First, this unity is traced to the Spirit who entered into the hearts of believers, creating one body. From there, back to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection made possible the one faith. And finally, to God the Father, from which one family all flows from. Our unity comes from the seven grand unities that are all rooted in the Holy Spirit trinity which means my brothers and sisters our unity is as eternal and unbreakable as the unity of god himself john stott talks about the trinity as the basis for church unity and he sums it up like this he says you can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods is there only one god then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. He says it is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. And if any of these points should strike us home, this one should. That the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. But, you know, this raises a very crucial question here. If the unity of the church is as indestructible as God himself, why does he urge us to preserve it? Why does he urge us to maintain it, right? What is the meaning for us to maintain something that is already there something that is indestructible as God himself. There's only one possible answer. That to preserve the unity of the spirit means to preserve it visibly. Visibly. To demonstrate to the world the glory of Christ through the visible unity of the church. It was John Calvin, the reformer, who said that it is the principal task of the invisible church, to make the invisible church visible. And we do that, first of all, by being the hands and the feet of Jesus, by proclaiming the gospel to the nations. But we also do that by modeling the unity of God himself, showing the body of Christ what it looked like, by demonstrating humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Friends, do you see the tremendous significance it has for Pillar Baptist Church? There is no room, no room for hatred, no room for rivalries, no room for factions and divisions. We are to embody the life of God's Spirit so that Jesus Christ will be plainly viewed to the world. And it's no wonder that Paul adds in verse 3, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. What he means by that is make every effort. It means it bleeds urgency. This is the idea. Pillar Baptist Church, this is urgent. Do it now. Yours is the initiative. Make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Get rid of your pride. Confess your sins Put on the apron of humility. This is how we preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now, now besides the picture of the unity of the Spirit as one body, Paul also mentions another metaphor earlier in the book of unity by a picture of a building. Uh, As we close, look back at chapter 2 with me. At the end of chapter 2, he concluded... In verse 22, after he has said that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the building, he says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord and whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. He tells us that the church body, we, we, we are all like a building and each of us are like a building individual stones in that building. Um, You know, know, in the construction of Solomon's temple, there was a process of cutting and smoothing out the stones so that they fit exactly next to each other. It's uh, really a picture of what the Lord is doing by fitting us together to one another so that each stone contributes to the vital part of the entire wall. Individual stones are not, not much value apart from the whole, but when they are fit together, this entire structure becomes this magnificent building, a holy temple where the God himself is dwelling in. And in order for that to happen, God must knock off some of our rough edges. He must shape us up, which is often a very painful process, and it is often through relational conflicts that we learn to display humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love. And, and listen, if God put you with some people you don't like, it's because they are the chisel God is using to knock off some of your rough edges. This is no joke. It's exactly what God is doing. God has put you exactly where you should be. He is building a temple and he is cutting you and he is smoothing you out so that you fit exactly next to one another so that you would be a holy temple in the Lord. And for the next couple of sessions, we'll look just how God builds his temple, how the body grows. But before we get there, let's remember that Christian unity depends and it begins on the charity of our character with all humility and gentleness with patience and forbearing love. This is where our effort must be put right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much because you are, Lord, the triune perfect Godhead. Father, we, we know that in you, you display the perfection of oneness. You are one God. Yet you are God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, all working in unison as one God. And Father, you have called us, the church, to reflect you, to reflect the uh, true unity in the Holy Trinity. I pray that Pillar Baptist Church, that we would all hear, Lord, that we would confess of our sins, uh, knowing that there have been many times we have not displayed humility and gentleness, and patience, and forbearing love when we need it. And it's caused, Lord, our church to have divisions and to not be this one church that you have called us to. Lord, help us to know that this is a serious call for all of us here. And help us to do it by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray.